Beloved congregation, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our Lord is eternal and it remains forever. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His light means light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. All the worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. May I worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. That ends the reading of our God's word. Let us ask uh, his blessing on our time in it uh, this morning. Father, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. Good sense is a fountain of life, but folly is poison for the soul. Gracious words are like honeycomb, but the ways of man bring only bitterness. Father, our hope is to know the sweetness of your truth to know that fountain of life as we open your word. We ask that you would quiet our strivings, that you would open our ears, and that you would let us hear your voice through your scriptures. Father, lead us in the way everlasting we ask. Amen. You may be seated. We, we Christians are something of a mystery uh, throughout the history of the world. Uh, Christians have rejoiced in prison. They have sung hymns while being burned at the stake. They have led prayer services for their enemies who are trying to kill them. And they have done countless other acts that defy logic and reason. And we ask, why? Why do we rejoice when life is hard? Why do we give thanks when life seems out of control? Why are we glad when it looks like those who hate us are destroying our lives? Why do we act like we're winning when to all appearances we are inches away from complete total and utter destruction it really comes down to just two possibilities either we have a screw loose or we know something that others don't 
Our passage today in Psalm 97 uh, begins and ends with a command to rejoice. And it's not a new command. It, we've heard it many times in the Psalms, definitely in the past few that we've been looking at in the past few weeks. And we hear it again today. And it comes with a reason why we rejoice. The fact that God reigns, that he is king. It explains what it means that he is king for all his competitors, uh, all the false gods. And so today we want to look at those two things. What it means that God is king uh, for his people and what it means that he is king uh, for his enemies or his competitors. That's what we want to look at. But may that never simply be academic. I, I think we run the danger, especially uh, when we come to passages like this, 3,000 years old, to read them, like there's some interesting tidbit of, of history. What we want is, is, as we read this psalm, for it to lead us to rejoice that our God is king. And for us to learn to hate all that is evil. That's what God, how God wants us to respond as we pause and meditate on this psalm this morning. It begins as Psalm 93 did. The Lord reigns. And when we looked at that a few weeks back, we, we saw that it could be translated, uh, the Lord is king, or even better, uh, the Lord becomes king. It's, a, it's an inaugural statement, a, a coronating statement as God ascends the throne. And, and that understanding of this makes sense in light of the imagery that immediately follows in our psalm. It says that thick clouds and darkness and fire and lightning and, and melting mountains attend to our God becoming king. And that describes exactly what the Israelites saw and witnessed as they stood at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20, recounted in Deuteronomy 5, while, while Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments. And you'll remember they stood in awe. They stood in fear. They actually begged God to stop speaking. They, they begged Moses, you go up there, we're going to stay as far away as we absolutely can. The image was overwhelming. It was more than they could bear. And it was there that, that God told Israel what he was doing. He was making them into a kingdom. They were no longer a, a ragamuffin band uh, or extended family. They were being turned into a holy nation. A kingdom. And as he descended onto that mountain, clothed in thunder and lightning and fire, he was establishing them as his kingdom. They were his people, and that meant he was their king. Not an elected president serving at the will of the people, uh, not a public servant with term limits. King, monarch, sovereign, ruler. 
And perhaps there's no place where that reality is driven home as clearly as Joshua chapter 5. You'll remember after the 40 years of wanderingness, they had some issues to deal with. Um, Pastor Isaac's helping us understand those uh, in his series in Exodus. But after the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, as, as that draws to a close, they entered into the promised land. And you'll remember one of the very first things that happened as they entered that land, as they crossed into the promised land, is they met the king of that land. Their king in bodily form. The God that met with Israel at the burning bush took bodily form and met Israel as they entered into his land. He had a sword drawn. And they asked him, Are you for us or for our enemies? And his answer was simple. One syllable, two letters. But it was all that needed to be said. No. Because whose side he was on was the wrong question. Because he's not defined by them, they're defined by him. The right question is whose side are they on? They're either his and on his side or they aren't. And Joshua understood that. And so you remember the next thing he says is, What does my Lord command of his servant? (laughs) Speak, O Lord, and I will listen, and I will follow. What, What Joshua embodies there is surrender. He is the Lord's to command as the Lord will. That's what it means that the Lord reigns. When when Psalm 97 says the Lord reigns and he's surrounded in, in clouds and darkness and fire and the mountains melt before him, this is the image we're supposed to have. Speak, O Lord, and I will listen. Not are you on my side, but am I on yours? In other words, when God says he reigns, when he says he is king, he's not saying that he is one king among many, one God among many gods. Uh, And so if verses 1 through 6 talk about what it means for Israel that the Lord reigns, verses 7 through 9 tell us what it means for the nations around Israel and their gods that the Lord reigns. And it finishes in verse 9 with, The Lord is exalted far above all gods. This too is what it means that he reigns. The Lord does what, what kings do. Kings rule and kings conquer. They have a domestic policy and a foreign policy. They build their kingdoms which means war with other kings. Even if if he doesn't initiate war, others will. Part of being king means that he will have to deal with others in their quest for glory, in their quest for dominance. Given enough time, 
all kings will battle and only one will remain. You give history long enough and that is what will happen. Only the true king, the real God, will remain. Uh, we see glimpses of this through Israel's history, don't we? When, when the ark was taken captive by the Philistines, remember they put them, they put the ark in the temple of Dagon. And what happened in the morning? <laughs> the, temp, the, the, the statue of Dagon was bowing at the foot of the ark. Or you remember Elijah uh, in, in 1 Kings 18 and his challenge to the, to the prophets of Baal. To see whose God was indeed the true God. And how Elijah was able to toy with the prophets as they whipped themselves into a fury. But ended in absolute humiliation and shame. The Lord is exalted far above all gods. It is a truth that is born time and time and time again in Israel's history. So what does that mean for those who place their hope in those false gods? Well, how could it ever end well? They took sides against the true God. Those who worship false gods can only share in the shame of those false gods. How could it be any other way? I think it's easy for us to read passages like these and think of them as these relics of history so far removed from our modern times. We don't, we don't think about the God of, of America versus the God of Germany and, 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 and regional ideas like that. But what are false gods? Simply put, a god is anything that you seek out for meaning, for comfort, and for morality. For for meaning, for comfort, and morality. Gods are what you use to judge other people as as good or bad. Whatever, Whatever standard you use to judge other people reflects and tells you who your god is. In other words, there are no true atheists. Christopher Hitchens wrote a book, uh, Is God Good for Whatever? Uh, When he says, is it good, he has a standard of morality by which he judges all people. That is his God. He is not an atheist. Everyone has a God. The only question is whether it's the true God or a false God. The true God delivers on his promises. False gods can only disappoint. So what do false gods look like today? Well, there are still false religions, of course. Whether they be uh, competing religions or false versions of Christianity, uh, these are organized, they gather, they have official doctrine. There are those false religions. But I think typically in America, we face a different kind of false god. Uh, Let me list a few. The false god of consumerism, which is the pursuit of comfort through the accumulation of wealth and the freedom to purchase whatever you set your heart on. 
I can be set free from bondage and worry and concern and, and doubt by, by purchasing. There's the false god of pleasure. The belief that you can, if you always feel good, you'll never be in want, never be in doubt, and never feel pain. Uh, a similar one would be the false god of recreation. Bowing at the idol of fun. Believing that if you are constantly distracted by entertainment, you'll never have to face life's harder questions. There's the false god of vanity. Worshipping at the altar of the mirror. Thinking that if the world would just see you as desirable, you might finally be persuaded of it yourself. Uh, There's the false god of recognition or celebrity. Longing to no longer be invisible, believing that if the world knows you, you must be worth knowing. There's the false god of power, the confidence that the solution to fear is to make others fear you. There's the false god of hard work. Thinking that trusting no one will make you never be in danger of being disappointed. And so you work hard thinking that through sheer willpower you can create your own destiny, your own fate. There's the false god of politics and activism, convinced that only the only answer to uh, your pain is to rid the world of all suffering. And so you seek to change the world, hoping then you might finally know peace. I could list more. I'm sure you could. But false gods are anything we look to for meaning, for hope, for that sense of morality. And they are all around us. And they are at war with one another. Given enough time, all kings will battle and only one will remain. Only the true king, the true God will remain. Now in case you're thinking that you need to warn me, Pastor, that's not very politically correct. I am fully aware of that. I know what we're incessantly told today. We're told things like, it doesn't matter what you worship as long as you worship sincerely. We're told that all roads lead to heaven. We're all basically saying the same thing. Or, or this one, it's, it's wrong to bring your religion into another culture. You must respect the local deity. Psalm 97 is a resounding rebuke on all such nonsense. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, verse 2. Not good intentions and a respect for people's customs. Truth, justice, righteousness, absolutes. There's no gray in these statements. And and, and the conclusion is clear. False gods can offer no hope, no salvation. Look at verse 7. All who put their trust in false gods will share in their shame. Will be put to shame. 
This is what it means that the Lord reigns. It means he is exalted above all gods. So why is God telling us this? Is this just a victory lap? Is he like, look at me. Not at all. (laughs) Not at all. It's a warning. A warning before it's too late. It's an invitation to those who seek their comfort in things that, that can give no lasting comfort to abandon their false gods and follow the true God. Such warnings are an act of mercy. They're an act of kindness. When a doctor tells you that what you're doing will will destroy your liver or something like that, he's not being mean. He's being kind. But that's not all it is. It's not just a warning. It's also meant to comfort God's people when they're being mistreated, when they're being despised, when when they're cast out. Because God's people are caught in the crossfire between false gods and those who follow them and the true God. We get caught right there in the middle. This is why God warns us, you will be hated for my name's sake, Matthew 10, 22. You will get caught up in people's hatred of me. Our psalm is telling us that this won't always be the case. The battle, it it can't go on forever. Eventually, only one king can remain standing. And so it's a psalm of comfort for the battle-weary. It's meant to set our gaze on the inevitable outcome so as to not lose heart while we wait. It draws our eyes back to Sinai, the the thunder, the lightning, the darkness, the clouds, the smoke. And to say, that's our God. Who can overcome him? It's meant to comfort us. How do you then, as one who follows the true God... Respond to such truth. Our psalm gives us two ways. Rejoice and hate evil. I want to look at each of those, but before I do, we need to acknowledge how we, uh, as Gentiles worshiping Jesus in America in the uh, 2023, how do we approach this psalm? We didn't come out of Egypt. We weren't standing there at Sinai witnessing thick darkness, thunder, and lightning. But that doesn't mean Psalm 97 doesn't include us, that it isn't for us. Uh, Just as God says he was establishing a kingdom uh, when he brought Israel out of Egypt, Jesus said he was doing the same thing through his death and resurrection. This is why uh, the announcement of his birth was filled, I mean literally filled with references to him being king, the long-awaited heir of David. Uh, This is why as he entered into Jerusalem on the last week of his earthly life, he was greeted with a kingly reception. Behold, your king coming on the colt of a donkey, right? 
This is why even as he died on the cross, he wore a crown with a placard over his head saying, King of the Jews. And it's the same kingdom that God established at Sinai. But it is experienced differently because Jesus' kingdom is unconstrained by national boundaries, unbound by ethnicity. He rose from the grave victorious over death. He ascended into heaven and he sat down on his throne. And King Jesus is today building his kingdom. And the Bible tells us he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And we know what the last enemy is. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us the last enemy is death. Jesus is marching throughout the earth and he is conquering, plundering the houses of false gods, setting people who are under their spell free. And that will culminate in absolute victory. In fact, the prophets describe the last day as one of clouds, darkness, and melting mountains. Joel does, uh, Zephaniah does, Micah does. And that's what's in sight in our psalm. That's what's in view. It's looking toward a day uh, of ultimate and final victory that must come. And it's written to remind you that that while false gods might be tempting, while they might tell you what you want to hear, following them can only lead to disappointment and shame and heartache. It's meant to remind you that things always won't be as they are now, that the war can't last forever. Jesus reigns and he must continue to reign until his, his kingdom is perfected and death itself no longer has a voice. That's where it's all headed. Knowing how everything ends is meant to set your gaze upon the inevitable outcome so as to not lose heart while you wait. Knowing that, how could you not rejoice even while you wait? So it's no surprise then that the psalm begins and it ends with a command to rejoice. Yes, I said command. And you might think, why command someone to rejoice? Just let them rejoice or not. I think the answer is because joy is a response of confidence, of actually believing what God says here. It's an act of faith. When people don't rejoice in truth like this, it's most likely because they don't really believe it. And the command to rejoice is a command to slow down and consider what's being said, to believe that it's true and let it flood you with comfort. And to let that comfort give way as it must to joy that that your God knows what is going on in your life and in your heart. That the God who covered Sinai in clouds and darkness, who can melt mountains at a word, has your back and will not let you perish. If you believe that, How can you not rejoice? 
This is what has led Christians to rejoice in prison. To sing hymns as they're being burned at the stake. To pray for their enemies in love while they're being persecuted. And countless other acts that defy logic and reason. This is the secret of Christian joy. It's not because we have a screw loose. It's because of what we know. We know something that the world doesn't. We know how it all ends. We've read the last page of the book and so nothing that happens comes as a surprise. It ends in judgment and through that judgment, rescue. Rescue through judgment. There's an interesting idea. Because just as God rescued Israel by judging Egypt and Just as he rescued Noah by judging the world, so too will final salvation come through judgment. That's not shocking. The shocking thing is that he himself would endure judgment to rescue us. That's why Jesus came. That's why our king wore a crown of thorns without shame, without apology, Because he came not to judge the nations, but to be judged for his people. To let the darkness consume him, so that we might walk in the light. Psalm 97 doesn't just describe the judgment of the world on the last day. It describes what Jesus endured 2,000 years ago, so that we would not have to on the last day. can you do but rejoice and give thanks give thanks to his holy name verse 12 but you don't stop there verse 10 oh you who love the Lord hate evil to rejoice in the Lord means placing your trust in him And that means despising all imposters. It starts with hating false gods and the lies they tell. Whether those false gods go by a religious title or they go by the title consumerism, pleasure, recreation, uh, vanity, power, celebrity, politics, activism, hard work, or whatever other one you want to fill in. Whatever else tells you to place your hope in them. They will promise you immortality. They will promise you meaning. They will promise you value, community, and a sense of righteousness by which you can judge others. But those who bow at their altars can only end in shame. And so to love God and his truth is to hate all lies that challenge it. It's to love justice and and righteousness, the foundation of his throne. It is so easy for us to fall into that mindset of, of how close can I get before it becomes sin. Hate. 
hating evil means despising anything that is opposed to God, anything that distracts you from Him. Anything that competes for your loyalty, your affection, your trust. This is an issue of the heart. Christianity absolutely will not be reduced down to what you do. It's about whom you love. The great commandment. What is the the first and great commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul, all of your mind and all of your strength. Christianity understands that the question is not whose side is the Lord on, but who's on his side. And for those who who are on his side, Psalm 97 lays out the end from the beginning. We know how it ends. And so we have confidence that we've picked the right side, that our loyalty is not in vain and it will not end in shame. How fitting is it then that, that we would end our time here at the Lord's table. The Bible tells us that that this makes a division between those who have surrendered to the Lord and those who have not. The point, the purpose, like our psalm this morning, is to give us a glimpse of where everything is headed. For those who have not yet surrendered to Jesus Christ as King, this is an invitation to do so. And in coming to find peace and and comfort and hope. For those who have surrendered, it's meant to comfort your heart and soul and to remind you that if you belong to the Lord, if, if, if He is for you, no one can truly stand against you. Not even death can stand against you because that is the last enemy He will conquer in silence. And those who have died in Him will come to life and reign with Him forever. It's meant to remind you that the Lord reigns so that you might rejoice. I'd like to ask the elders and Pastor Isaac to come forward as we receive this gift from our God this morning. O Lord, our King, you, you reign. There are times when we forget. We forget that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne and that you must reign until all enemies are subdued. That fire goes before you and that mountains melt at your appearing. And when we forget, we grow scared, despondent, confused. And so we thank you. We praise you. We rejoice because of your judgments for you are most high over all the earth. You are exalted above all gods. And so we ask that you would teach us to hate evil and to delight in what is good and to give thanks to your holy name. Amen.